0: Our sermon today, text today is from Romans 6, 1 through 14, and in a moment, uh, Pastor Nathaniel is going to uh, preach on this, and I'm a little bit envious because this is a wonderful text, and, uh, but I'm very glad that he's preaching, don't get me wrong, um, but I'll say this as we get into this. It's helpful to know that Paul is saying what he's saying because he's done such a good job of preaching the gospel, that there are apparently some people who say, what? I'm saved by faith? I don't have to do anything at all? Jesus did it all? Well, I must be able to live however I please. This is great. Or something similar to that. And Paul says, yes, you have been saved by faith, by grace alone, through Christ alone, and it has nothing to do with what you've done. And that brings us to our text now, Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? we, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, God. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for your prayer as well. like it's sort of all been said, and uh, I'm hesitant to add anything more. Uh, I'd love to hear you preach on this passage. I know this is your department, but uh, I'll see if we can find some stuff out of it together. Uh, Let me pray for us briefly. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this conversation. We still need your spirit. I pray that you would make us alive today that the blind would see, that the deaf would hear, that the lame would leap for joy. Lord, we need your help. You've promised this to us. Uh, Help us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, When I was in elementary school, uh, my school had a science fair every year, which I loved. And when I was in fourth grade, my dad did the coolest thing that any dad could ever, ever, ever do. He helped me. Really, he uh, did himself. He, he built a little model steam engine for me to show at the fair. We used a, a tank as a boiler and a camp stove to heat the water. And then he took uh, an air compressor from a, uh, a truck and somehow he moved some stuff around inside, so that instead of compressing air, it worked the other way, and you could, like, make the wheel turn, and it was the coolest thing I had ever seen ever, and uh, so spring of my fourth grade year, I'm getting ready for the science fair, and uh, I'm in our garage just adoring my new science fair steam engine, and it was on this, these heavy blocks of wood with this heavy tank and this heavy air compressor, and so I was Putting it back into its place in the garage, pushing against all this weight, and all of a sudden, in the back of my leg was this sharp pain running up and down the back of my leg, which I had never experienced before. And so I collapsed in pain on the ground. Mom! My leg. So she comes running out in the garage. What's going on? I don't know. It hurts. It hurts so bad. And she looked at me and she said, Do you have a leg cramp? And I said, I don't know, it just hurts. So she told me to grab my foot and pull it back. And I said, no, that would hurt so bad. And she kept telling me to do it. So finally, I reached down, uh, grabbed my foot, pulled it back. Ah, instantly better. I'd never had a leg cramp before, ever. How would I know? that the one thing that in my mind would be the most painful thing to possibly do was the one thing I could do to help myself, uh, to set myself free from this pain. Uh, I share that story because I think if you're like me, when we talk about sanctification, about the process of being made holy, it feels a little bit like that. No, not that! (laughs) Uh, And I want for us to see today uh, from this passage that uh, sanctification is actually really exciting. Uh, It's hopeful and joy-filled. It is the possibility for us to move from death to life. Uh, It is the one thing that, even though it hurts, will set us free and ultimately set us free uh, from pain. As, uh, As a pastor, this is the most exciting thing about my job, is that when I meet with you, Uh, over time. I've gotten to do this with some of you already. I see you change. I see the Lord working in you and you growing, and it is what keeps me going. It's the most exciting thing about my job. Uh, Sanctification has the greatest potential to encourage us, uh, for us to feel free and joy uh, to grow. Now, if big Christian terms are often not helpful, uh, what's going on is that we're in the middle of a short Three sermon series on the big long ification words justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, last Sunday, if you were here, Todd talked about justification, which is the teaching in the Bible that if you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ and have been baptized into Him, you are completely set free from the guilt of sin. That there is nothing to worry about, it doesn't depend on what you do. Uh, You are set free from all the sins you've committed. You have been set free from all the sins you are going to commit. It's exciting. Uh, Next week, Todd gets to preach on glorification, which is the teaching that at the end of the age, everything will be set right. Everything will be restored in heaven. Our loved ones will come back. We will all be the way we should be. Lions and lambs will lie down together. And so when Todd asked me to preach on sanctification— My first thought was, man, you get the fun ones. (laughs) Uh, Because what sanctification means, sanctification comes from the word sanctify, which means holiness. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. uh, Or as I like to put it, the process of becoming more beautiful. The process of becoming the way that we should be for things to be restored. But of those three, it's the one that we get to see happening now. Uh, And so I want to set... Uh, two main things before us. One, that sanctification is fundamentally a movement from death to life. And then secondly, I want to talk about how it happens, which is most of what this passage has to say. Uh, But we're going to start off talking about the movement from death to life. I just want us to, before even digging deeply into the passage, to reflect for a minute on the fact that the metaphor, the message that Paul uses about sin is death. And when he talks about sanctification, the way he describes it is newness of life. That this painful process of saying no to sin and yes to holiness is really a movement from death to life. You see in the beginning of our passage, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then if we fast forward to verse 10, it sort of sums up, For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. Uh, Paul, as Brandon pointed out, is answering the question, oh, so if we're so forgiven and it's so free and and we don't have to clean ourselves up to be forgiven, why clean ourselves up? And there's multiple ways that he answers. Uh, This is, but part of the answer is that uh, the whole point is is to become free from the death that is sin. Like the guilt is important, the justification sets us free, but justification sets us free so that sanctification can give us life, that sanctification was still the goal that we could be set free from the death of reigning sin. The theme of referring to sin as death uh, has a long history in the Bible. It actually starts in chapter 2. God establishes the garden, and he builds this beautiful place, and he puts Adam in the garden, and he says to Adam, "'You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, "'but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil "'you shall not eat.'" For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He's saying when fall came into the world, when Adam ate the fruit, that sin entered the world and in a sense death happened. He's talking about physical death because there was no physical death before the fall. And Adam eventually died, which he wouldn't have without the fall. But really what he's talking about is spiritual death. Because you notice in the quote, God says in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we know that Adam didn't die that day because he lived and had other sons and daughters. But what happened is in some way his heart died. That something inside him that loved what was right and thought that evil and sin were disgusting, something died that his soul became malformed. And ever since then, uh, that malformation lives on his people um, in this form of living death. Paul put... uh, uses the same term. In Ephesians 2, he says, um, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Clearly, he's not talking about physical death because these people are dead, and yet they have passions, and they're carrying out uh, their sinful nature. Uh, and I want to say that he's not saying that desire is bad and passion is bad. What he's fundamentally pointing to is that our hearts are dead, and so the desires and passions that we have tend to be ones with an with a affinity for death, uh, for brokenness, uh, that not desires themselves are bad, but, but he's pointing out, like we've been talking about, that the death nature of sin and our propensity towards it. Uh, the apostle Peter, uh, who could be at times even more intense than Paul, <laughs> described the dead nature this way uh, in Second Peter 2. He said, Those who, with dead hearts are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct with eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Uh, that fundamentally, this thing that God would pry us away from is characterized by, by death, by emptiness, by uh, destruction. These things that, uh, that Peter names adultery and greed and corruption— that uh, for us, in a sense, to say, oh, excellent, I've been set free, now what I can do what I want, is a complete non sequitur because the whole mission, God's whole mission is one of moving us from death to life, of that which is unhealthy and foul to that which is life-giving and affirming and good and true. Um, The doctrine we preached on last time, justification, justification, We often say that justification is the motivation for our sanctification. The thought that we have been completely set free should be so awesome, so overwhelming, so shocking that it motivates us to grow in our holiness. Uh, But if you're like me, I think for many of us, justification over time sort of loses its excitement. It's sort of, yeah, no, it's been forgiven again. Okay. And justification and sanctification or being forgiven and growing in holiness, have a little bit of a reciprocal relationship because it's justification that sets us free to grow in holiness and life. But it's that understanding of the extreme darkness of sin and the joy of light that make justification exciting. That if justification has grown boring for us, it may be perhaps because we've lost sight of the prize of where it is that God wants us to take us to a life. A beautiful life that is pleasing in his sight with everything good um, peter's language uh, to me uh, where he says that they are uh, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, sounds a lot like addiction, and uh, if you 've ever been a victim of addiction or known someone who struggles with addiction, you know what it does, that it's an ever-increasing desire that wants more and more and more, and yet in turns give less and less and less, the end of which is, is death. Sometimes literally, uh, sometimes of relationships, sometimes just of our heart and soul and faith. Um, these are the easy forms of death to see. Uh, if you are like me, you grew up in the church, uh, we know that obvious sins, like uh, sexual addiction and addiction to drugs, are bad. And so we keep those aside or hide them, and we are better at presenting ourselves as clean. But I want us to see that uh, sin, especially in the church, darkness uh, takes on more subtle, more tricky forms that are easier to hide. Uh, Our fellowship group has been studying... The gospel centered life uh, from World Harvest Mission. And this last week, uh, we got to this exercise called self assessment orphans versus children. Uh, and the concept is that when we embrace God as our father, we know that we are children and we live out of freedom and we love holiness. And conversely, when we don't embrace justification, we act like orphans, as if we have no father. Uh, and so we have these subtle sin tendencies. And then it, asks you, it gives you a list of orphan behaviors and son and daughter behaviors. Uh, so here's some of the, the orphan behaviors that were more convicting for us. Um, these are, uh, I would say, manifestations of death. Uh, <clears throat> lacks vital daily intimacy with God. Lives on a success or fail basis. Needs to look good. Depends on self to fix problems. Is defensive when accused of error or weakness. Needs to be right. Has a critical spirit. Tends to compare self with others. The. Here were some of the son and daughter behaviors, I would say, life giving things set before us in the gospel. Content in relationships because you are accepted by God. Freedom from making a name for yourself is teachable by others, is open to criticism because you rest on Christ's perfection, able to take risks, even to fail. Doesn't always have to be right. Doesn't that just smell like life? It's convicting, but yet it's beautiful at the same time. To be free to try things and fail. To be free from comparing myself to others. This, This is what Christ has set before us in sanctification. Moses, upon giving the whole law to the people, the very last thing he said when his ministry ended, he said, I have set before you today life and death. Choose life! That you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for his is your life and length of days. Uh, So the law is set before us. It it convicts us of our sin and drives us to Christ, but it's also a picture of what life looks like. And if we miss it in the law, we have to see it in Christ. That Christ, when he came, see, Paul's analogy here is that sin is death, but Christ, we've been baptized and raised into Christ's life. So Christ's life is our image, of what true life looks like. The Apostle John said, of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, so it was real, it was concrete, which our hands have touched concerning the word of life. The life, that's Christ, was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and which he has made manifest to us. And he said in the beginning of his Gospels, In Christ was life. The, light, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we see Christ in the Gospels, when we read stories about him, about him, uh, ministering to the woman accused of adultery, when we read about him cleansing the temple, all the stories about Christ, we are seeing a picture of, of life, a picture of what God cares about, a picture of, of true holiness, that if we as believers love God, we love his son, and we love what he loves, we delight in it, it's beautiful, and we long to move forward for, towards it and take part in it. And the flip side, if we reject it, if we receive forgiveness, but don't embrace a life of ever-increasing holiness, we're not just rejecting a creed or a truth or a tradition or a congregation of people. We are rejecting the very person of Christ and God's own nature. Uh, that there's, there's no stepping away from holiness without stepping away from Christ himself. I was uh, contemplating this morning on my drive in what it means to delight in Christ and his nature and what holiness looks like. And then suddenly I remembered uh, where it is that my beard came from. Uh, I was 24, had just graduated from college, and I was totally in love with the band Death Cab for Cutie from Seattle. Uh, If you're not familiar, that's okay. It's kind of a Seattle thing. Uh, but I was in love with this band. They were so cool. Their music was awesome. And so one day I was uh, cruising the internet and I was watching one of their music videos, the song that had just come out. And uh, Ben, the lead singer, had a little bit of stubble on his face. And I thought to myself somewhere down in my heart, that is cool. <laughs> if Ben is going to do that, maybe that would look good on me too. And so about a week later... There it was, and here it remains. And uh, whatever the source of my beard, it's a picture of, I want to be like that. I love that. I want to take on part of that. What I see that doing, that's what I want to look like, and that's what sanctification is. It's delighting in Christ's nature in the perfection of holiness. Uh, So how is this going to happen? Because if I stop here, we're in trouble. I don't want to pile coals upon your head um, to whip yourselves into being sanctified because as we pointed out, we aren't holy because of our dead hearts. The great tragedy of the Old Testament is that Moses set before the people of God life and death, and they chose death. That they were not able or willing somehow to move towards life. Uh, That's why I chose earlier our reading from the book of Jeremiah. That uh, Jeremiah was a prophet uh, in the time of the exile, where God had um, disciplined his people by sending them away from their homeland. It was a time of great crisis. And uh, he needed to answer the question, how are things still going to turn out well if I put holiness before you guys and you didn't do it? And this is his answer starting in, I'll start in verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with her fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and then I will be their God and they shall be my people. The idea is that because God's people were unable, because of their deadness of hearts, to move towards life, God had to actually work within their hearts and bring life to write the law, not on tablets of stone, but in our hearts and our guts so that we would know it and love it and do it. Ezekiel, a prophet from the same period, put it perhaps even more powerfully. I believe he was communicating the same message. He said, God spoke through him saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So that's justification. All that grossness encrusted upon you from sin, I will wipe that all off. But now listen to this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So that was the promise given in the Old Testament, that that would be the solution, that, that holiness, that life in God's people would finally come when he moved within their hearts. And so people longed for it for generations and then Christ came. And now we're going to return to our Romans passage because this is really what Paul's talking about. And I want you to see if the passage doesn't pop now. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to it still live in it? Here's what he's saying. Not, if you keep sinning, that's stupid. What he's saying is, no, it is impossible by the nature of the case for that to be so. If you have died to sin, you won't live in it. Because Christ has put his spirit in you. And has made you alive. It is impossible by the nature of the case for you to continue in sin. That perhaps sounds a little bit unbelievable. Maybe it should, but it, it, that's, I'm telling you, that's what he's saying. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. It's a statement of fact of something that happened in the past. It can't happen more than it already happened. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he goes on spinning out that thought. But this is the idea that if you are a believer, if you... Have your faith in Christ just as certainly as you have been forgiven all of your sins. His spirit is within you and you will not continue on in sin like you did before. Now, I know that if you know yourself that you still have sinned. That's why we confessed our sins. But hear me out. You do not love darkness the way you once did. And you love life more than you used to. And ten years from now, it will be even more so than it is now. It is your destiny. It is unavoidable. It is what Christ has promised that he will bring about because it's his mission. Um, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens gradually. Uh, I think sometimes we shortchange ourselves by judging on too short of a time scale. Oh, I struggled with it last week and I still struggle with it now. But let me ask you this. Just think for yourself for a second. How do you feel like you're doing now, spiritually, compared to how you were a year ago? How about five years ago? I hope that that's encouraging. Uh, It's encouraging to me as a minister as I see him working in you, that it's inevitable and there will be ebbs and flows. It comes and goes. We'll have periods of of darkness, sometimes for years. But Christ has promised, first and foremost, that he will do it. He will bring it about. Uh, An illustration I'll borrow from someone else, I don't even remember where it comes from, is that sanctification is like D-Day. That we know from history that uh, in World War II, that leaders both in Germany and in the Allies knew that if the Allies were able to establish a beachhead in France and hold on to it, that the war would essentially be over. And so that's the way it happened. Uh, on D-Day, the Allies established a beachhead in Normandy, and I bet that some of you know what day that happened on. Does anyone know? Shout it out. June 6, 1944 is D-Day. Does anyone know V-E Day? August 14th. August 14th. Yes, somebody had it. Does anybody even know what V-E Day means? V- In fact, I think it was in May? It was in April? I don't remember. I don't don't know where it is. VE Day is Victory in Europe Day. That's the day the war ended. But it's less memorable to us because we know that once D-Day happened, the war was over. Except that it wasn't because another 10 months had to pass by and battles were fought and tens of thousands of men died. But in a very real sense, the outcome was determined. And sanctification is like that, that once Christ's spirit comes into your heart and brings life, the war is over and continuation in sin is impossible. Now there's going to be battles and skirmishes. There'll be death and loss, but the outcome is secure. So what do we do? Well, there's a couple action verses in here. Take a look at verse 11. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, what I'm telling you is the number one thing for you to do in your fight against sin is to believe that this is true. Now, it's true whether or not you believe it. It's a statement of fact that this is what Christ does. But if you embrace your justification, your full forgiveness in Christ, and you can, because of that, bring your sins to Him and say, Christ, You are on a mission to root out death and darkness from my life, but it's still here. What are you going to do about it? And to have that boldness, to not hide it from him, but to bring it before him and to ask, to look, to see what he's already doing about it. You can join him in the place where he's struggling against your sin. If you are aware of your sin, it's because he's already brought it up to you. When I meet with people and they say, Pastor, I am struggling with the sin and I'm so concerned. I also am concerned, but I'm also immediately not concerned. Because I know that they wouldn't be concerned if Christ wasn't at work. That it's not normal for a human being to be concerned about sin. That that only happens when Christ's at work. Uh, So I want you to see this as confidence and hope. And the second is to join him... There's work for us to do in joining him in what he's doing. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So you have been brought from death to life. Learn more and more how to live like it and how to respond to what Christ is doing. Uh, I want you to know that... As your pastor, uh, I have on my computer uh, a software, an internet monitoring software that catalogs everywhere I go on the internet and uh, categorizes them all uh, from greatest to least by raciness. And then it mails that list to two of my best friends so that they know every week what I've looked at on the internet because I'm a man I'm a human being, and I need that help. And it is, it's is—it's not death or humiliation for me. It's life. To know that that's there, to have that shield, to have that reminder, the protection, and my friends who are looking out for me. And uh, if that's not too much for me as your pastor, it shouldn't be too much for you uh, as well. That, uh, our struggle on the Internet is just one of many struggles we have today, uh, but I thought it was a good example. And if your spouse, either male or female, has that struggle, and wants to put some sort of monitoring system on their computer, it's not because they don't love you. It's because they do. It's because they want to fight for life. And we are called to engage in fights like that. Now, I'm putting this at the end of the sermon because that fight won't work unless we know already, A, that it's a fight for life. It's not just saying no to our desires. It's actually saying yes to life. And secondly, because Christ has already won the battle and we are fighting in him, that we can see him working in that place and drawing encouragement from it. Uh, I'll leave you with this final illustration. Uh, I lived in St. Louis for a few years, going to seminary, and I, was, uh, I worked in a restaurant there for a while in Maplewood. Uh, and I found out, because I gave tours at the restaurant and brewery that was connected with it, that Maplewood, before I moved to St. Louis, had a reputation and was often called Maplehood because it was not a nice part of town. Um, But this uh, restaurant and brewery chain saw an opportunity there, and so they moved into Maplehood, and they purchased an abandoned grocery store and remodeled it and turned it into a restaurant. And uh, there's this huge parking lot in front of and on the side of the grocery store, and so they didn't need all that space for the restaurant, so they tore up part of the parking lot, and built a patio for the restaurant. And then on the side of the grocery store, there was a little parking lot that I suppose was like an employee parking lot. It was 10, maybe 15 cars. It was about a quarter acre. And they tore up that parking lot. They pulled up all the asphalt, and they churned up the dirt that remained under the asphalt, and they added some compost, and then they started a garden for the restaurant. Uh, They grew lettuce, spring greens for the salads, organic, and uh, tomatoes and Jerusalem artichokes and asparagus and eggplant and any sort of amazing, awesome, expensive vegetable you might want in an organic restaurant. And they used that to supply the restaurant. They had a uh, a big three-bin compost bin where they would take scraps from the restaurant and compost them and turn them into more compost for the garden. And by the time I got there, they'd been doing this for about three years. And that summer, and keep in mind, summer in St. Louis is not long. This little quarter acre of a garden, in addition to all the other plants and vegetables, produced over 120 pounds of spring greens. Contemplate that, for a second. If you've ever gone to Costco and bought the little container of spring greens, it's less than half a pound. This little quarter acre of parking lot produced 120 pounds of spring greens in one summer. And that, that is what Christ is on a mission to do in your soul, is to take the cracked, broken, dried-up parking lot of your life and to set it free from the guilt and to bring life that will produce way more than you ever thought possible if we trust him and engage him in that challenge. This is why sanctification is one of the great tools, gifts given to us to encourage us in our ministry. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this truth, for setting us free, for giving us life. We need the life today. Help us see it and love it and embrace it and take joy in it. Make it real in us and our community that we could spread life amongst ourselves and across the island. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.